I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. I'm Angelie Preston. We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is What's Next. A dedicated hour to have important conversations about the issues facing the marginalized and underrepresented communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truth. What's Next continues our mission to discuss race, equity, and the common concerns of Buffalo's East Side and beyond. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. This is What's Next. I'm host Thomas O'Neill White, and joining me today is Dante Davis and Alia Williams, excuse me, Alia Williams, community organizers for for Voice Buffalo. Thank you both for being on with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. We're talking about a very important subject today, missing children, the Ebony Alert System, as well. Data from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children says during a five-year period between 2016 and 2020, black youth 18 years of age and younger were disproportionately represented in missing children reports. Can you talk a little bit about uh, missing and exploited children and and, and just kind of what Voice Buffalo is doing? Yeah, so... It had to be about June when um, I was informed that, like, within 14 days, 14 children, black children, went missing, right? And I'm a parent. I didn't hear anything about it. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, wait a minute. 14, 14 children went missing within 14 days, and it's not all over the news. Like, my phone didn't go off not once. There's no Amber Alerts. So in that moment, we knew we had to do something. So that's that's kind of what put the battery in our back to really tackle this issue what's the difference between being considered missing versus being considered a runaway so they say if you're like a teenager right and your parent doesn't know where you are say within 24 hours it's an automatic assumption that you ran away because according to law enforcement according to what you do here in the media, mm-hmm. our babies are running away. That's automatic what they go to without even investigating. Yes. Right? You just automatically assume to be a runaway, and that's not true. That's not true. You could be missing. You could have been abducted. You could have been trafficked. No one knows just automatic. If you're a black child, you're considered a runaway. So the criteria is a bit murky yeah. in this situation. Yeah. What about updating the criteria for what qualifies as a missing child? Yeah. So that's what we're going to be working on. Like we're right in the beginning stages of planning how that looks. But yeah, if if me as a parent, I don't know where my baby is. My baby is missing. Yeah. And that's the way it should be treated. Sound mm-hmm. the alarms. Let's find this child. Yeah, because it could be one of many reasons why they are missing. Absolutely. But if, but if you're going to narrow it down to, oh, they ran away, then kind of missing the forest for the trees a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I was told, um, so if they're running away, we don't want to bring national attention to it because say they're running to a space that's safe for them. We don't want them to not be able to go back to that space. That's that's the excuse, right? And that Mm -hmm. came from Mm -hmm. literally law enforcement. But what's the other side of that? 
let's say they they were abducted. The more we wait, our child is in danger and, and it's less time that less likely we'll get them back. So who are we to say right off the bat without knowing anything? We just know a child is not here. They're away. Right. Mm-hmm. That they're not a runaway, that they're that they're not a missing child and they're a runaway. Who are we to say that? So do do I have this right though? If 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 a person is considered missing, well, you have to like file the report like forty eight hours. Yep. Now is that the same for if a child runs away? You know what? When a child runs away, I don't even think there's. You don't have to file anything. That's just the assumption. So the assumption right off the bat is this child is a runaway. Right. There's no yeah. filing because if they're a runaway, okay, give them some time. Call yeah, around the family members. Yeah, they'll come back. Yeah. And normally, like in our community, um, a lot of parents whose children have run away, air quotes, they don't go to the police right away because there's like this idea that the police aren't going to take it seriously. So instead, they go through social media as a route yes. to find their right. child. Right. Yeah. Especially Facebook. I, I you know, you every every few months, you know, something every will pop days. up. Every yes. few days. Well, yes. It's days. Every days. Literally every Every day you're hearing of a child, you're seeing a child's face plastered on social media, um, the missing children's page. Um, again, like you said, bury the violence. You're you're seeing it ourselves, though, but you you never see it on the news. Some of these children haven't returned home. Right. So now we're past runaway. Right. Mm-hmm. They're missing. And you still don't see it on the news. And that, you know, has a lot to do with race. Yeah, it has everything to do with race. There was literally over the summer, okay, we heard about the 14 children in 14 days and then multiple others day by day. And then, to be honest, there was a little white girl who went missing. Um, And I saw it on the news, and I saw it on News 4 and News 7. And then next thing you know, about within two days, you found her. She was found and reunited with her family. And I was happy. Right. Yeah. This isn't to say right. what the news does for white kids is wrong. No, right. it's no. not. But it should be equitable. Uh-oh. Yes. Right. That's it. And that's what the Ebony Alert is. We're not asking for nothing more. <laughs> we are asking for the same thing. Sound the alarm. Our child is missing. And then hopefully we can have the same story with the reuniting um, mom with the child. Yes, and I I want to get into the the Ebony Alert system. It was passed in the state of California in October, SB six seven three, and it authorizes. And I'm just taking this off the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, authorizes a law enforcement agency to request that an Ebony Alert be activated by the California Highway Patrol if the investigating agency determines that it would be helpful. Similar to the Amber Alert, the Ebony Alert would activate electronic highway signs to alert the public of the missing person. Additionally, SB 673 also encourages television, Mm -hmm. cable, online, radio, and social media outlets to cooperate with disseminating the information contained in an Ebony Alert. And so now you, as Voice Buffalo, are trying to get a, a similar similar type of legislation that California has trying Absolutely. to get that passed. I mean, would it would it 
would it look similar? Would there be what what would be the difference? So it would actually look very similar to this, right? Um, and the difference is, is we would we would want to change like the time frame from when you're considered missing. Like forty eight mm-hmm. hours is way that's a that's long, a long time. time. Yes. And um, I even feel like if a, if a mother doesn't know where her child is, I feel like a whole full twenty four hours is a long time. But at least, at mm-hmm. most. Twenty four at most twenty four twenty four hours, and then we need to we need to be getting these teams, especially law enforcement, out here looking for that child and other little stipulations. But that's all in the Ebony Alert too. If they mm-hmm. if there's a mental um, illness component to it, if we feel like they have been taken or ran away to someone that they can be in harm's way, all of those different things like that is the reason why an Ebony Alert should go out. And I think we we mentioned earlier on on the on the Voice Buffalo website on on your Ebony Alert page there are faces of a number of missing youth from from here to Syracuse. It's 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 shocking and saddening yeah. to see those faces and you know how long they've been missing and and just you know all across Western New York to Central New York. And I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, from Syracuse to New York City or to Albany, it's going to be the same. Yeah. Also on your website are, are steps to help raise awareness. I mean, we talked about social media, but are, what other steps can can people use to help raise awareness? So just getting the word out there, like talking amongst parents. Mm-hmm. I mean, we try calling the police, but steps are if you see something, say something. So like if we saying a child is missing and they're in the area of Bailey Avenue, I feel like why can't there be a team? I wish we had little like um, community teams. Yes. To, to yeah. just, yes. To okay. go out there. And that's literally what Barry the Violence is doing. And shout out to Karima Moore. She's mm-hmm. bomb.com. Like she took it upon herself to go out there and look for these babies. Like, we need to do that. And it's, it's sad that we kind of got to do our own thing, but we got to do our own thing until things like this get passed. But saying something, you know, being being out there to support this parent in whatever way is possible. But right now, like, it seems like that's all we have is social media and our voice, talking about our baby who's missing, giving, you know, description. Yep. And what areas to look in, when you last seen them, stuff like that. And also building more relationship with young people because oftentimes, like, young person will know and have more information on their friends or Mm -hmm. their sister, et cetera, on where they went or if somebody took them, et cetera, et cetera. It's just important to build that relationship so that young person feels comfortable coming to an adult and giving information on where their friend's counterpart is. Yeah. I f- and I feel it would also be helpful to, you know, have church is so powerful. Churches mm-hmm. and community centers. I mean, those those one those could be places a child could go to, but also a place to get the word out yeah. for a missing child. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah, and I know you don't want to name names, and <laughs> you don't have to here, but legislators local legislators have shown interest in getting on board with uh, ebony alert for the state how do you get the ball rolling so we're in the planning phase right now so what we're doing is 
having meetings, discussing things just like we're talking about now, what it looks like for Buffalo, New York, or Western New York, what mm -hmm. it looks like, right? What's some next steps? We are reaching out to partners also, church congregations, and community. Yep. We want community buy-in, the houses of God. We want um, our partners all in because this affects all of us. Like I said, if, if a baby is, is missing and not safe, none of us are, right? And so that's where we're at. We're still planning this, seeing what it looks like. We're still hosting meetings with the youth. I, I don't mm -hmm. know if I mentioned that. We've been having mm -hmm. listening sessions with the youth and also with parents, right, about what it looks like to be in a, a world that's safe. How, do, how does that feel? We, we're imagining, right, what it can look like and things that we need to keep them safe. And so we've actually been doing those things, which we plan to keep doing. Um, Who, who's, who's involved with these meetings? So um, it's our voice team hosting the listening sessions with the youth. Um, and I have had a couple partners. I've had a couple youth pastors come out. Um, and where we just sat in the room and we asked them directly, because, again, like I mentioned before, we don't want to go to adults and ask the ask adults what we feel the youth need. We're going right, right to the source. Yep. Hey, guys, how is it on a day to day basis? Do you feel safe walking down the street? What can we do to fix that? A lot of that you'll see on a talk show. We actually hosted a talk show in November mm -hmm. with the youth and um, we actually dug deep and talked to them about what what they feel like. Um, just on a day-to-day -day basis, going to school, mm -hmm. um, walking outside the house. Me as a parent, not even feeling safe, allowing my children to go outside like you could back in the day. So our goal, Voice Buffalo's goal right now, in addition to this Ebony Alert, is to bring back the village. Like yes. bring back the village of community where you knew who your neighbors were. Mm -hmm. They knew you. And if they saw you somewhere you shouldn't be or saw you and you looked like you were in distress, you knew you can run to Sister Pat's house or Mr. Jim's house down the road for safety. Um, we need to bring that back because that is something that's lacking um, in our community right now. Dante, you are the third person that I've interviewed since September to, to mention that we used to be outside. Mm -hmm. we, we used to be outside we used to you know get on our bikes yes go wherever when the street lights came on it was time to go home uh, and it's just it's just it doesn't seem to be like that anymore what what's the general feeling you get from talking to the youth about how they feel about their own safety how they feel about going to and from school i mean we've heard late lately about a, a lot of fights after yeah. school some some violence within the schools. What was the general feeling you get from the youth about their safety? Scared. They are totally just fearful of walking down the street. We have a couple of seniors we talked to and literally walking to school that talked about um, men driving in cars, slowing down, trying to get them to come with them. And they're like, wait, I'm just a child. And they're like, so what? You know, mm -hmm. so we talked about that. They actually one of the requests from the talk show was to get cameras at bus stops and they or people that can stand there uh -huh. and, and, and make sure they're safe. So they're, they're afraid. They're totally afraid. If you hear that every time you go outside, um, you as a black man, black men are just disappearing. I think you would be afraid to go outside, too. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. And so they're they're afraid. I know me. I have two teenagers and a preteen. They, they got to think I'm like the most mean mom in the world because they're like, mom, nothing's going to happen to me. And I'm like, baby, 
we don't know that. Right, right. So, no, mm-hmm. you can't go here. Like, if they're at the park, I'm across the street in the car. And and it's like you got the creepy mom over here, but no, I'm just trying to make sure that my babies are going to come back safe. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And so they're they're afraid. That was the consensus that we heard was fear. Yeah. The good thing, though, is like even in that fear, they still had solutions like they still had wants and needs and they knew like. The problem is here, but, like, if we do this, life will be better for us. Like, a lot of them name things like having, like you said, more guards that care in schools. Um, when we talked about the violence that that's happening after school, they talked about wanting more safe spaces for them to go, yes. such as community centers right. and that, during after school hours. Um, so they know what they want. Yeah. Yeah. And what? Do we get into this? How does the Ebony Alert differentiate from the Amber Alert? No, we didn't. First of all, it differentiates because it's specifically for black and brown babies. Yes. Which you don't hear about. Um, I think in some of my research out of, was it, was it statewide or, or the world? It was, it was national. Nationally. Yeah. 40% of the missing persons were people of color. Yes. Okay. So this is going to highlight what ha- what hasn't been highlighted, which is us, right? When mm-hmm. when black and brown babies and women go missing, you don't hear about it. That's number one. Number two is it differentiates because the Amber Alert right now is from seventeen and younger. Right. Those are the stipulations. Mm-hmm. This is from twelve to twenty five. Okay. Yes, which is a big thing. Also, things like. A runaway could be considered missing and you can be you can have an ebony alert. Yes. Yeah, for a yes, child yeah, exactly. who ran away. Technically they are missing. Yeah. Technically. W- whether they ran away or not, they are missing. Yeah. Right. If, if we don't know where yet. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So yes, yeah, so it's it's things like that. But those are they seem small, but they're monumental. Because before an Amber Alerts is just if there's a car involved, if they feel like you've been kidnapped and they took you, they're going to take you over the border or something like that. It's too much, right? Mm-hmm. And people can get away and people have gotten away. So this is going to just less of the fluff. Mm-hmm. You're missing less sound the alarm and get people looking for you. Yeah. Ali, do you have anything to add to that? Um, no, I think you, you pretty much said it best. Yeah. Yeah. So what's next for a voice Buffalo generally, and then more specifically the Ebony alert system? Cause you guys, a voice Buffalo does so much. You guys yeah. are involved with so much. Yeah. This year we're this upcoming year. We are really planning to work big on youth public safety like this is the year for our children Mm -hmm. we're trying to keep them safe we're seeing that we're in crisis and we are trying to be a solution to that so we are trying to do community centers and you could talk a little bit about what we're trying to have because yes we have community centers now right yeah and something's not working apparently yeah so i'll let ali explain on that a little bit Yeah, so this summer I was lucky enough to be able to supervise an amazing group of summer youth for the county summer youth program. 
And my main goal in working with them was to mostly see like what changes they wanted to make in community. And through talking to them about a whole bunch of issues that they were affected by, the biggest need we seen was more safe spaces for them. Mm-hmm. So we came up with the idea of advocating for fully invested in funded community centers with youth programming. And that could include things like tutoring, food pantries, being able to employ our young people in these community centers. And the key is having them open all through like after school hours. So we're talking like from 2 p.m. like to 10 p.m. Because that's where we're seeing a lot of the juvenile violence happening in Buffalo. Mm -hmm. So them being able to be provided with the space to keep them busy, to keep them employed, to keep them fed, to keep them safe. We believe that will decrease gun violence in our community. That will decrease child hunger in our community, unemployment, all the things. We believe having a, a hub for our young people will increase quality of life in Buffalo overall. How do you get that program off the ground? Is it, It's still in the incubation mm-hmm. period? Yeah. So right now what we're working on doing is talking to both our county legislators and doing some talking to our city council as well because both parties are a part of the funding for community centers. And talking to them about the idea that we have and the importance of investing in the community centers that we have all around the city. Will you bring the youth along to join in these conversations? Definitely, definitely. They're the ones that's like spearheading it. I'm I'm taking a backseat. This is their idea. Mm-hmm. I don't have ownership that's over awesome. it. So definitely, yeah. Yeah. It'll it'll also offer counseling mm-hmm. and just a safe space overall where they can come and vent. It's a lot of youth so there's a there's a gap, right, between parents and their yes. children. Yes, okay? of course. You yes. know, communication gap. We don't understand them. We A lot of times parents come from, well, back in my day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, look, it ain't back in your day, mom. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah, so right. the community centers, the way that they're envisioning it now, will have people like them mm-hmm. and people that are really for them. They can go and talk to. One of the things that they said when we had the listening sessions with them over the summer I was thanked so much just for hosting a safe space, yes. which brought me to tears. Like, thank you, Miss Didi. They call me Miss Didi <laughs> for offering us a safe space. I felt safe. We had no judgment. We let them talk how they wanted to talk and express themselves. And we listened. Mm-hmm. You know, we listened. And so there's so many things we have in the works. I don't want to let it all out here. <laughs> yes. Right? Yeah. But we, we, we totally have things planned where there's going to be moments that parents are able to just sit and listen and they're able to to tell how they feel because there's a lot. We didn't have social media right. like mm-hmm. this. Right. Right? So that's a whole nother component of it's really bad. There's no other, like social media is bad because it's so much. Yeah, right it, is, at their, it is certainly a gift and a curse. Yeah. Right. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. It's so much right at their fingertips. I mean, you got babies that's two years old, can't speak, but they know how to find Paw Patrol yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on, the, you know, on the, the social yeah. media, along with all of the things that comes with it. So um, it's just a lot. And they need to be heard. They need to be understood. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're trying. We are really we really have a heart for the youth and we are really trying to provide them um, an outlet. 
Yeah, and I I think providing that outlet and having the parents there just to listen. Yes. Mm -hmm. Just to listen. I think that is a nice bridge of generations. Yeah. It's so necessary. It really is. Yeah. It really is. You're listening to What's Next. I'm Thomas O'Neill White with my guests from Voice Buffalo, Dentea Davis, Alia Williams. I want to thank you guys so much for being on. We will follow up, of course, because this is a very, from Ebony Alert to just having, uplifting the voice of the youth. Yeah. These are two things that, you know, are the are the essence of, of our show. Mm-hmm. So thank you guys for being on with us. We'll be back with more What's Next after this. You're listening to What's Next, our place to discuss the important issues of our communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We want to hear from you. Click on the Talk to Us option in the WBFO app, and we will work to get your questions or comments on the air. Do you have a story or concern that we should be addressing? Email us using what's next at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. Welcome to What's Next. Today with us, we have Assemblymember John Rivera uh, of the 149th Assembly District here in Western New York. Uh, Assemblyman uh, Rivera, you, you were by uh, back in the summertime. We got a chance to just say hi real quick. So uh, thanks for a chance to, to get to know each other a little better today. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure. You know, and let's, since it is a chance to talk a little bit and get to know each other, yeah. a little about about your background. You're a Buffalo kid, a Hutch Tech grad? I am, yes. I was born and raised on the West Side. Uh, lived um, on Busty Ave, which, uh, you know, all these years later, it's where I live now. Mm, uh, okay. Uh, on the same house I, I grew up on. And then lived my whole life on the west side uh, about a year and a half or so two years in north buffalo but never left the city um uh, you know in high school i uh high school and college i delivered pizzas for you know uh, as a living and then i uh, went to buff state uh got my bachelor's there by the end of it i uh was able to you know ha- work and i'm really really grateful for the experience in uh, congressman brian higgins office uh, as like a field representative or like someone that essentially assisted with constituent stuff and did that for a while. Uh, went into banking, started off kind of as a career that I didn't know if I was going to, you know, make a whole thing out of, but, you know, I kind of moved quickly. I started off in like a customer service call center. And then by the time I was 23, I was a branch manager. So I managed the branch right on Grand Street and Ferry. Okay. Uh, so, um, you know, that, that was exciting. Managed another office, and then with all the switches, with all the banks that happened between HSBC and Key Bank of First Niagara, went in a different direction. All the while, you know, while I was in banking, kind of involved in community, got sat on a lot of boards, got involved in, in campaigns, um, you know, for my predecessor and, and obviously my, my father, Councilman Rivera. And uh, then, you know, really wanted to go back into government. A position came available in, in the county executive's office, Mark Poloncars. Again, really grateful for that opportunity. Worked there for about five years in his office and then uh, as like an administrator in the Department of Public Works for the county. 
then uh, then then it ran for assembly. I'm married. My wife Stephanie and I have our, our little one Anna. She's five. Oh, congratulations! And uh, yeah, that's 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 me in a quick nutshell. Yeah, it'd be interesting then to get your perspective about the West Side. I I, I was a commuter to Buff State, so I drive oh. through uh, the West I'm a Side. Too. I think on the way to I would take Plymouth. On the way home, I took West. I think okay. I remember that very well. Right. And it was interesting. Obviously, that's now 40 years ago, more than 40 <laughs> years ago. And uh, you know, maybe occasionally driving down those streets. Other times, um, that has cha- it changed considerably. Not yeah. necessarily for the better. For initially, now it seems like yeah. it's considerably different. Maybe for the better. Yeah. Give me your perspective on the West Side. You know, it's interesting. You know, I I grew up like I said, I'm busty, and then I moved to 14th Street between Mass and Rhode Island, and I was there for about 18, 19 years. And you know, I think I lived through a pretty rough patch on, on the West Side. You know, I lived on a you know where you know certainly had issues with you know drug activity definitely had a lot of issues around vacant housing you know arsons uh, a lot of issues around just overall quality of life and safety concerns you know throughout the 90s and early 2000s but i think you know i think once sort of the mid-ish 2000s we we began to see a, a shift um you know there's a lot of probably reasons why that those shifts happened i think you know, we we did away with little by little property value started to increase, right? So on one hand, you know, it, it encouraged people to come in, take the houses that were, you know, forgotten about, and you know, were able to turn around. For a, for a window of time, it it meant that we had a lot of house flipping issues where we had investors coming in from outside the area or really outside the country, purchasing big portfolios of real estate and essentially not doing much with houses. So we kind of muddled through that a bit. But once we kind of got, went through that phase, we, we really saw that people wanted to live here. People wanted to move here. And it's been a learning lesson. I mean, people will go where they feel safe. People will go where they have, you know, unique housing. People will go where there's something different. And uh, I think throughout the West Side, we just have we've, – we've done a good job of, of just keeping so many big, beautiful houses um, you know, Richmond Avenue is, is a street that, uh, you know, a lot of people want to live on. Sure. And then we have, you know, everything from Bidwell Parkway. And, you know, we always had sort of a decent stability around Elmwood Avenue uh, going towards Richmond West. And then all those blocks in between little by little just started picking up. And then now we're seeing more and more blocks west of Richmond going towards Niagara, I suppose, that that are, you know, turning around. Now we are in this sort of difficult position of, of people being priced out. Um, which is something we're just constantly having to deal with, but I think I think West the West Side is just always going to be a welcoming place. It's 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 a place that's accepted you know communities from all over the world since the West Side was the West Side, and right. and that's what it is now. And, and you know you know you mentioned driving down the West Side forty years ago, the makeup of the neighborhood looked really different, I'm sure, mm-hmm. uh, than what it is now. I I think about it now, and when I grew up, my neighborhood was a predominantly Italian neighborhood. Over time, it became a, a Puerto Rican neighborhood, which is you know my ancestry, and and uh, now the neighborhood that my, my folks live on is a predominantly Burmese neighborhood, and that's you know that's awesome. Right. I mean, that's just honestly, the, the, you know, the more the, to speak to the uniqueness of Buffalo and and the way that we evolve here and what we're doing, and we're seeing a resurgence around people coming in from all over the world because we're a welcoming community, and um, and where there were vacancies that were long vacant. We're seeing turnaround from people that are just calling America home for the first time. So it's it's neat to see. 
Uh, you mentioned, of course, your Puerto Rican heritage, <clears throat> and I'm sure. interested maybe to follow up on that a little yeah. bit, just to, because, like you said, the West Side is is well known for that. Tell me about your family uh, coming to Buffalo. Sure. So my um, on my father's side, my my grandfather and grandmother came here. Uh, you know, purely in in the same American dream sort of cliche that a lot of families came here. They genuinely believe that they would find just a, a stability, work, uh, frankly, higher wages, and and a proper education for their kids. You know, my my grandfather came here, Juan Rivera came here, not knowing the language, not mm. knowing really anybody. Mm. Uh, it came right from Puerto Rico, right from Puerto Rico, wow. and uh, landed in Buffalo, uh, a, a place that was beyond beyond far, foreign to him, and. Uh, Got married, raised five children, and and everybody's doing really well. And I'd imagine if he could see what we're doing now, he'd be pretty amazed by it. And you know, it, you know, I, I think a lot about him, especially with everything going on in the world and how we're treating people that, that are coming in from other parts of the world in America. And I'm and I'm proud that we're just still staying close to those values here in in, in our neck of the woods. Um, but. You know, he, he, he came here, worked in the fields. I have other, you know, uncles and, and relatives that came from that generation. They either worked in the railroad industry in agriculture or they worked uh, in the steel industry, you know, because okay. Bethlehem was so big back then. And, uh, you know, little by little, more and more families came here. Now, you know, the Latino community in Buffalo is probably about, give or take, 10% of the population, um, mostly located in the West Side, uh, Riverside area. And, you know... I'm the first member of the state assembly or Senate majority of Latino descent upstate of uh, in upstate New York ever. Wow. Uh, which was a bit of a surprise when I found yeah, out. That's uh, stunning. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the next closest member of Latino descent is in like uh, Westchester. <laughs> right, right, right. So, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. But honestly, w- what I take it in, in that is, uh, yeah, I think it comes with a responsibility and I've, and I've gone to places that I don't represent all across upstate New York and met with, Individuals that are active in the Latino community, you know, I feel in a way a bit of a voice for them. You know, I've met with farm workers that work in in towns I've never heard of before, Mm. and I've met with business owners in Rochester, and I've been to, you know, met with folks in Albany and, you know, Binghamton and, you know, all across New York and uh, Niagara Falls and you know, it's it's Jamestown, and you know, it's 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 interesting to see the uniqueness of their struggles, but at the same time, it's the same goal that so many other people have. I'm, I'm curious, and I want to get into more local issues, but this is more of a, a universal issue. Mm-hmm. Is the West Side maybe a, an example of what can be when it comes to uh, diverse populations? I mean, I genuinely think so. I mean, I think that you know it's it's funny there's been all these fights across the country around you know how we interact with and how we support the folks that are coming here and everybody's method of coming here is very different you know i, I mentioned the, the burmese population you know the method by which most folks that are coming from that country are coming here is through the state department and through refugee resettlement right. and it's a very kind of uh, clearly laid out specific process by which refugees come here um and I know that a lot of folks are coming uh, other methods and, and people are kind of being rerouted and shuffled across this country. But what I'd say is, you know, if you really look back, if you, if you stand 10 steps back and you look at all of New York State, especially upstate New York, you see communities across the state that are, you know, they're, they're not doing much to attract new people. They're not doing much to, to secure their future. Um, but at the same time, we see and we have this conversation about population loss. And I think the population loss conversation, and I know it's been sort of in, in the media lately around how many people we lost last year, 
it's really twofold. It's it's one is we we don't have affordable housing, which is always going to be a problem until we have more affordable housing. But then it's also you know we have thousands and thousands of people coming to to upstate New York. What are we doing to support them? What are we doing to to lift them up? You know, we were on such a downward trajectory in our population just in the city of Buffalo. But if it wasn't for resettled refugees and folks that are coming here from all over the world, we wouldn't have had an increase in our population. So what does that say? It is cheaper and more practical and more humane to invest in people that are willingly coming here and want to work here and want to buy homes here and want to open businesses here than it is to try to lure some silver bullet entity that may or may not come through on promises of jobs and and go through that whole thing that we've done generation after generation in upstate New York. So We're talking with uh, John Rivera, the Assembly Representative for the 149th District. And as we're talking, uh, Assemblyman, about uh, your district, we're focusing a lot on on Buffalo and the West Side, which is its own fascinating story. We can't forget the other parts of your district. Yeah. You represent Lackawanna. You represent yeah. Hamburg as well. Yeah. So what are you hearing from, let's say, the, the people in yeah. Hamburg? It might be a little different than what you yeah. hear in Buffalo. Yeah, no, it's, 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 I really, I mean, every assembly member will say their district's the best district. Right. But I really think that my district is the best district. Okay. And I think it's really the most representative district of the whole state. I think the the makeup of it hmm. and the diversity in, in its economics and its and its in its population, I just think it's really reflective of New York State. Uh, I don't know how objective I could be in it because I represent it, but Certainly. I think I think Hamburg really stands out. Um, one in its amenities. I mean, there's not many. I think it's the only town that has you know its own ice rink, its own golf course, its own beach. Uh, it's got beautiful libraries. It's got great school systems. It's got both the Frontier and the Hamburg Central right. School District. It's, you know, it, it offers you, you know, waterfront homes. It could, you know, village living. It's, you know, it's, it's got something for everybody. Um, I think that Hamburg it stands out a, 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 among towns in Erie County. And, and I think, you know, knock on wood, today it, it, it's a town that people want to move to. It's not people, it's not a town where people are just sort of, eh, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll check out Hamburg. Yeah. No, it's, it's a destination that I think people want to go into and, and the population's increasing there. And, um, you know, there, it's certainly different from, from where I grew up, but you know, I, what, what I have found is I've taken these last going on four years now, you know, I've, I've met with the superintendents, I've toured schools, I've seen the libraries, I've seen the community centers, I've seen the senior centers, I've visited every playground, visited every park. And, uh, you know, it's clear what what folk, what's important to folks down there is they. It, it's about the amenities. I've been able to secure funding for a lot of the projects they want to get get done down there, from new, you know, reviving some old parks and playgrounds to doing some neat things around uh, their libraries. And one thing that we do have a lot of in the city that they don't have a lot down there is public art. So I've been trying to ah. do a, a lot around public art down there. Oh, really? What, yeah. I, I, is there something that, uh, things that have recently emerged? Yeah, there's three things that we worked on to date. First one was there's a pretty big mural um, on the side of a, of a building down there near Legion Field. If you've ever been to Legion Field, it's I have. kind of towards the corner of the village there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we... You know, if if you're if you're familiar with it, Legion Field is this really nice complex where there's baseball games and soccer fields and everything. But it's a bit tucked away, you know, yep. to, to get back there. Off so, of Lakeview Road, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the the um, the building that you would essentially pass as you're going into the 
the the complex there that whole building is now a, a giant mural okay a, a, a kind of cool town of hamburg thing all right uh, and we engaged the village and, and local folks got to select the artist and it was really neat we have uh we help finance a sculpture on the it's not on route five it's uh, maybe old lakeshore road or lakeshore road it's escaping uh, but it's right on the waterfront uh and it's sort of it's, it's a it's a metal sculpture that kind of invokes it, you know water quality and and it's sort of a statement around pollution and things like that so that's kind of neat and then we did a small art installation music guard music instrument garden sort of thing at the lake shore library oh okay um, that's right. so yeah. you know and, I, and i'll be doing more of that i think public art is something that really engages the community and they feel part of it and and it's it's neat you know there wasn't a lot of it down there you know where i am I don't really, really represent Hurl Avenue that much anymore, but when I did, you know, there's public art up and down Hurl yes. Avenue, especially murals. And on Elmwood, too, we've been able to do another mural on Elmwood, and uh, we've done some other things down there. So, you know, I, I like injecting public art whenever possible, and especially when we can get local artists to do it. Uh, so that's kind of been one of the things I've worked on down there, yeah. I know also uh, for you uh, some bills that you introduced or helped to introduce uh, in the assembly regarding uh, lead paint when yeah. it comes to renters. And this is an issue that has been lingering around uh, Buffalo for, for several years, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Talk about the legislation, its purpose, and then and we'll get into maybe why maybe it hasn't become sure. a reality. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. So there's really two bills that I focus on, and I've passed them every year since I've been in the assembly, so now it's my going into my fourth year, so it'll be there. And on one of the bills, my predecessor passed multiple times as well. Um, the first one, essentially, I'll give you the abbreviated version. Sometime in the in the Cuomo, the Mario Cuomo administration, wow. uh, there was a change via executive order that made it so that uh, people essentially couldn't file claims on homeowners' insurance policies for lead paint poisoning. Mm. So if I was a renter and you were my landlord, you have you have uh, insurance on on the home. If I did a, if I had a slip and fall, if I broke my leg on the stairs, I could essentially seek damages. Uh, if I have an accident on a trampoline, I could seek damages. But if my child was poisoned by lead and I could prove that it happened in the home, there is a specific line in insurance law in New York State that says that lead paint claims are exempt. Wow. Uh, not a lot of states have it. If I had a guess, I'd say the insurance lobby ensured that that took place all think. those years ago. Yep. Um, so essentially, I have a bill that just removes that exemption. That just makes it so that, you know, a, a tenant can seek damages uh, if their child is, is poisoned by lead. Just and it passed the assembly. And it passes the assembly every year, and it, and it does not pass the Senate. Um, and I don't put it on the sponsor of the bill. Um, that's a person that's highly passionate about it, Senator Ryan, who's my predecessor, who passed in the assembly when he was in the assembly. I think that, you know, I, I think that there are interests you know, for lack of a better word, the 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 insurance lobby that that really cries wolf and says, oh, you know, everyone's premiums are going to go up if we do this, or right. you know, insurance companies are going to leave New York State when we do this, and it, it's I just can't believe that that's true. You know, I think if so many other states don't have that exemption, then right. what are we talking about? And frankly, if it, if that was a change that just happened in the '90s, that means we had that coverage all these years some point in, I think it was 92 or 93, that change happened. And it's not like all our premiums were reduced by insurance companies because right. we no longer had that coverage. So technically, we're still paying for it. Sure. Um, you know, and uh, it, it's it's been interesting to see how, you know, uh, how 
I wouldn't say entrenched, but just so how stuck in 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 sort of the narratives that we have. And I see that same narrative so many other times of like, oh, you know, if we do that, then they're going to leave the state. Right. Oh, you know, you know, I, I find it really hard to believe that insurance companies are going to leave New York State, right. one of the most populated states right. of the country. Right. right. You know, one of the, you know, some of the highest real estate values in the country. I don't imagine insurance companies leaving New York State because of this one thing. But, you know, so that's one bill. The other bill, it's a little more um, interesting and, and it's impacting probably a lot more people. And that is, you know, I, I'm a believer that we can eradicate lead paint poisoning in a, in a generation if we really invested into right. it. You know, out of the 10 worst lead paint uh, 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 diagnosed areas uh, in, in the state, nine of them are in this region. One of them is the one I live in, and four of them are, are ones that I represent. So, mm. you know, this is a serious problem in upstate, but truthfully, it's a problem in Rochester, and it's in Syracuse, and Albany, and Binghamton, where there are old houses, you know, that you'll, you'll have this problem. Um, and you know, the second bill, what it does is I'm a believer that we're not going to eradicate this unless we make it something that's for, for front of mind. And right now, when you sell your property, you essentially sign a piece of paper everywhere in the country. You sign a piece of paper that says, well, to the best of my knowledge, there's no lead in my house. Right. And it's, 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 a, it's sort of a nothing thing, you know. We kind of just look blindly and claim that we don't know that there's lead in our homes. And we say, oh, to the best of my knowledge, no lead. Right. Here you go. And that's this attestation that really means nothing. So my bill, what it would do is, you know, for any home that was constructed before the cutoff or in which we no longer produced and sold lead paint, uh, a, an actual lead inspection has to be conducted by the seller of the property. Uh, and that report has to be given furnished to the incoming buyer of the property um and you know i've met with lead certifying uh companies i've met with lead uh in certified uh, uh um you know inspectors and i've done a lot of homework around this and you know the process by which nowadays because of technology the process by which we can inspect whether you're where your house has lead takes all of about two hours mm. you know nowadays we we have a, essentially what looks to be like a gun that emits a, a, a light. You point it at a wall, and from that, they can determine how much lead, if it's safe or not safe. So this, you know, my my idea is it doesn't speak specifically to forcing remediation or, or forcing any sort of, like, uh, encapsulation. What it does is it makes it so that the person that's going to be owning this property has full awareness of where lead is. And truthfully, they could then, if they choose to, make that part of their purchase to say, well, I can see by this report that there's this much lead in these walls and here and there. L let's see what we can do to bring down the price so that we can, you know, uh, fix this problem before I move in. But, you know, I think with these two pieces of legislation, it protects renters uh, or at least arms renters with some sort of, you know, assurance that they can at least not be in the hole once their children are found with, with lead poisoning. And then the other bill, it makes it so that any anytime there's a new homeowner, that they're going eyes wide open on on what 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 are the dangers that they could be exposing their children to. Legislation, uh, legislative sessions upon us. Uh, are yeah. they going to be reintroduced? They will be reintroduced. Yeah, yeah, they they will be reintroduced. I mean, I think, you know, there's, you know, what you'll find with me is that you know I'm I'm a person that's always willing to bring people to the table and have conversations, and I'm a practical guy and 
and you know, uh, but I'm I'm also not going to accept excuses from from non-objective industries that that truly just want to see things happen, continue the way that they right. are, and you know, I, I the sad thing about both bills, truthfully, you know, hundreds and hundreds of bills pass the state assembly every year, uh, and many of them don't have to be debated because they're just so, you know more mechanical maybe or such no-brainers but both these bills have to be debated every year mm. you know my republican colleagues take out time from their schedules to make sure that they say what they think on these issues and it's it's just sad truthfully because at the end of the day this is about kids being poisoned by lead um but you know the insurance lobby will say what they'll say or the real estate association will say what they say and you know, I'm unfazed by it. I don't, you know, it doesn't matter to me. I'm, I, I I didn't take this job because I thought it'd be easy. Right. But I, I definitely d was surprised when I realized that the first year that I, that this was going to even be a debate because I just thought it's just such a no-brainer thing. Right. But it's what it is. Yeah. We're coming down to our final few sure. uh, minutes here with uh, Assemblymember John Rivera of the 149th Assembly District uh, here on What's Next. It, you wrote a, I'll call it an op-ed, you sent a letter into the, to the Buffalo News mm -hmm. regarding uh, kind of the, the what you see on Grant Street, yeah. um, concerns about where it's going. Yeah. Um, is that any part of what your legislative activity might be about uh, this coming session, that uh, things, the things that you're seeing in a, what can be and has been a very vital area, or yeah. vibrant area, Grant Street, uh, some of the issues that are that are uh, coming up from there. What, what 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 is the thought there? I mean, you you put the letter out there, so is yeah. it more, you know, we're going to try to follow this with legislation, or is it more of a um, I guess a leadership call to action uh, I, idea? I'd say it's twofold. It's not as much legislative, but it's it's definitely a a call to action. But it's also you know, things get funded and things get prioritized based on them being magnified. You know, if if I look at you know the waterfront twenty years ago. What it was and what it is now is very different. And, you know, give credit to Congressman Higgins, who led that charge with the New York Power Authority and, and everything there. But it, if somebody didn't magnify it, we would have just still been driving past nothing there. Right. Um, so, I, 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 you know, I look at Grand Street. I know that it's got potential. I know that its layout is in such a way that it's it's got the kind of density we need. Um, you know, there are neighborhoods like Grand Street all over the state that are flourishing, uh, that have those kind of storefronts, that have that kind of mix of real of of uh, uh, residences and, and and commercial, and there's really no reason why it, it it couldn't be in a better place. And if I had to boil it down, it, it's it's just a deprioritization. Okay. You know? And I know, you know, it's easy for me to look at the city uh, and say, you know, where what are we doing on Grand Street? And I know that it's a big city, and I know it's got a lot of streets, and I know it's got a lot of business districts, but the Grand Street's different than any other neighborhood in the city in that it provides uh, so much opportunity to such a diverse community. And, you know, when I was a kid, walking to Grand Street was just such an, a common thing that we used to do every weekend or sometimes during the week. You could buy Christmas presents on Grand Street. Right. You could buy, you can go to your butcher shop and your bakery. And there's no reason why those things can't exist now. It's not that real estate's that expensive because it's not. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, if you look at what happened to Niagara Street, which is, you know, not far from it geographically, 
what happened with Niagara Street was you had a street that people didn't feel safe going down. Now, in the case of Niagara, it was because it was so wide. Right. People didn't feel safe crossing Niagara, legitimately so, because cars would fly 50 miles an hour on Sure. Uh, but what happened? Once you address lighting, curbs, uh, infrastructure, landscaping, once you can build out the infrastructure of a street properly to to welcome pedestrian traffic, bike traffic, other modes of transportation other than cars, then what you'll see is you'll find people walking down these streets. If you go to the village of Hamburg, the village of Hamburg 20 years ago was not, it, it had its little shops here and there and it had its things, but there was no momentum, there was no buzz there. It wasn't until the actual road infrastructure of the village the changed. Him. Yeah, which maybe at first people weren't well. No, about. nobody liked him at first, right? <laughs> but in, you know, but I, the change has been great. But, right? but you know, people walk up and down the village of Hamburg at all mm -hmm. times of day and night, and and people can right. feel safe crossing the street. Right now, it, when I, I joke about roundabouts all the time, because like I said, I used to work in the Department of Public Works for the county, and uh, when I used to get involved in highway things. I, I have this going expression, which is I've never seen a roundabout that people didn't like when it was happening, <laughs> but really liked 20 years later. Right. Uh, and, you know, if if we can handle what the road looks like on Grand Street, what the lighting looks like, what the landscape looks like, you know, you then businesses will come. That's what happened in Niagara Street. It's not as if we gave every business on Niagara Street some sort of financial incentive to come to Niagara Street. There's really not much of that on Niagara Street. Right. Here and there, I'm sure there's something. But on the whole, you don't need big box or silver bullet, big things to come into your neighborhood to fix it. It's never been the way. It's not going to happen that way. It's going to be block by block. It's going to be storefront by storefront. And once you begin the momentum, it'll just take off on its own. But what's happened in the last few years is everything from McDonald's that had been there for many years closed. Rite Aid, granted, it's it's got its nationwide you know financial problems, but now our neighborhood that at one time had probably four pharmacies has none. Hmm. Uh, and you know, the West Side Bazaar is no longer there. It's now on Niagara Street. Um, you know, we have a lot of vacant buildings there, and you know, are there owners of buildings that are holding out, thinking that there's going to be some windfall, and that's why they're holding out? Yeah, that's part of it. But honestly, if if we had you know, correct enforcement of building code violations, those, those landlords would be much more motivated to get rid of buildings that they're doing nothing with. Hmm. And at the end of the day, you know, people will always feel unsafe in front of vacant storefronts. No doubt. And people will make the claim that crime is what it is, but we just read in the paper this week, crime is at a low. And that's just not, not just for Buffalo, it's across the state. And that doesn't mean that crime doesn't exist. And I know that sometimes people... Uh, don't like hearing this that sort of that sort of statistic, but the the issues on Grand Street is not crime. The issues is is that it's poorly lit, that it's that it's not that pedestrian friendly, and that we've not done anything with all our vacant real estate there. Um, and that's and you know one thing brings another. You you incentivize somehow businesses coming in, then one business will come, and then another one will come, and another one will come. People. You know, entrepreneurs, business owners, they will go where they can make money. And there's no reason why people can't make money in a neighborhood that dense uh, because we really don't have that kind of thing in, in Buffalo, really. So I think Grand Street has the world of potential. Um, I, I said earlier that I was the branch manager of a bank on Grand Ferry. My right. district office that I live, work in now 
is directly next door to that. Oh, so I've been on Grand Street one way or another for a long time, <laughs> uh, and I'm I'm not leaving anytime soon. So um, you know, knock on wood, if I'm reelected, I just think where you know we put money in the things that we want to put money into. If we wanted to to make Grand Street something special, we could. Um, but you know, it begins with the city of Buffalo. It's a city uh, maintained road. That's not a state road or a county road. Uh, and, you know, we've had conversations, but I, I just feel as though, you know, it's, it's, it's not moving at the pace that it could move. And, and every day that we do nothing is a day that it gets worse. So I'm, I'm hopeful that there's a, a brighter future for it. Um, but And I give a lot of credit to the people that are there, that have stood there. And I give a lot of credit to the people that are opening up businesses there right now, um, especially post-pandemic. And uh, I'm hopeful that that's going to turn around. Well, perhaps when we can have you back and get a, an yeah. update on how things are going on Grant Street and also maybe a, a look at the legislative uh, yeah. district as well. Yeah. Uh, Assemblyman Rivera, thanks for joining us on What's Next. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. John Rivera represents the 149th Assembly District of New York State, covering Buffalo, Lackawanna, and Hamburg. He's been our guest on What's Next, and this is What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Only End, and WBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.